This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Salam Fathayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee. Stories that stick with you. Last week on Uniquely Milwaukee, we had a conversation with Tiffany Miller, a resident of the vibrant Bronzeville community. Our upcoming plans include reconnecting with Tiffany next week, allowing us to gain a unique perspective on the neighborhood through her eyes. If you don't already know, Bronzeville was the historic core of African-American Milwaukee on the city's near north side. Racial segregation roughly defined its boundaries along State Street, North Avenue, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Drive, and North 12th Street. Milwaukeeans also used the designation Bronzeville to refer more broadly to the African-American occupied areas of the city's north side. This was an echo on how the moniker is used in Chicago. Bronzeville was also the center of Milwaukee's jazz scene. Major clubs on Walnut Street hosted nationally famous artists, including Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday. But the construction of the North-South Interstate 43 and Park East freeways destroyed many Bronzeville homes and businesses and displaced numerous residents and disrupted community life in the 1960s. In order to understand the lasting physical and social damage to the Bronzeville community, it's important that we understand housing in Milwaukee. My colleague Tariq Moody did an outstanding podcast called By Every Measure, and for two seasons straight, he talked about systemic disparities in Milwaukee. And a returning guest has been Reggie Jackson, an award-winning journalist and researcher who possesses an extensive and profound understanding of the historical development of our nation's racial hierarchy. So recognizing the depth of this podcast and the expertise Reggie brings, we have chosen to feature a re-edited episode from By Every Measure for this particular episode. This conversation starts from the Civil War. Tariq Moody speaks first. During the Civil War, the Homestead Act was created in 1862 by Abraham Lincoln and lasted until 1934. Basically, in a speech by Lincoln, the purpose of this act was to elevate the condition of men to lift artificial burdens from all shoulders and to give everyone an unfettered start and fair chance in the race of life. Except this act benefited mostly white families and left out a lot of black people. We learned about the Homestead Act in school. Oh yeah, the Homestead Act allowed, you know, people to immigrate and become, you know, homeowners and blah, blah, blah. No, you stole the land from the Native Americans and literally just gave it to white people. And guess what? When you have land in America, you have the beginnings of wealth building in America. Owning land is the major way American families built wealth. And so you have this built-in advantage over people of color. And then when the federal government starts to help people become homeowners by creating a new type of mortgage that allows you to pay only 20% down, white people are the main beneficiaries of that. Because when the federal government issued um, federal housing uh, administration loans to people from 1930 to 1960, 98% of those loans went to white people only. This discriminatory lending led to a practice called redlining, a term you might have heard. There is a fantastic book called Color of Law that describes redlining as a practice used to deepen segregation by refusing to insure mortgages in and around black neighborhoods. Meanwhile, the FHA was subsidizing developers who were building these 
amazing suburbs for whites, but with one caveat, they couldn't sell to black people. Every area that black people lived in were redlined, right? It didn't matter if you had money or not. You were gonna be redlined if you lived in that area, you were black. So that's another economic advantage. And you have to remember at this time, this was the era of the New Deal. But that New Deal enacted by President Roosevelt used coded language to exclude black people from various programs that were meant to help all Americans. One of my favorite books on this topic is called When Affirmative Action Was White. And it talks about how we had a system in place that when we created Social Security and unemployment in 1935, both programs were written with very colorblind language. But then all of a sudden we decided that we would put a clause in at the end that said, oh, if you're a domestic worker or a farm worker, you're not eligible for either program. So here you are, most black people in the South, which is where a majority of black people lived in the 1930s. You're, you're a domestic worker, son. You can't, you can't put any money away into Social Security so that you have some money in your old age. Oh, ma'am, you're a domestic worker. You, you work for Mr. Johnson, you know, cleaning his house and, and nursing his children. You're not eligible for Social Security, ma'am, sorry. And that was the case from 1935 until 1952. So between the lack of Social Security, no unemployment insurance, and the widespread practice of redlining, it's no wonder that we're still dealing with these disparities in housing today. And you think it would stop here. But no, it even affected black veterans. To me, one of the greatest disservices ever done to any American in history is the GI Bill that promised all those GIs who fought in World War II and came back after fighting you know, fascism were told that you'd be able to get access to a VA-guaranteed home loan and you'd be able to get free access to college or tech school, whatever you know, post-secondary education you wanted. And in its face, it's colorblind. You know, it doesn't discriminate. The law says all of these GIs are eligible. But guess what? You're a black GI. You come back like two of my mother's uncles from fighting in World War II. Do you think the people in Mississippi are going to let you buy that house that you're trying to buy and give you that loan? Heck no. They are not going to do it. So I told you a story about my dad who, you know, I'm a veteran. My dad was a veteran, came back, GI Bill, and, and he was telling me he couldn't get the loan. But luckily he found a house where the owner was white, but he was just the developer, whatever, was just desperate to sell to whoever. So he, they worked a deal together. So my dad got his first home and built his wealth. Again, he's the first in the family to do that, right? So the generation wealth is brand, brand, brand new. You know, and, and of course, he's had issues of corporation racism and being pushed out and all this stuff. And but I just that just got me thinking about my, what my dad is and the, and the wealth generation wealth, the black middle class is in wherever is Atlanta, wherever is usually a first generation of middle class right now. You know, one one element related to, to what what you just shared about your dad, you know, trying to buy a house, right? You know, there have been multiple black people here in Metro Milwaukee in the North Shore region, right? They literally, well, one of my best friends, her, her, her mom and dad tried to buy a house, right? And these were both highly educated people, had great jobs, and they couldn't buy a house. So you know how they bought the house? <laughs> they had a white friend buy the house, right? And, and, and that's how they were able to, to acquire the house. They had this white person you know, uh, buy the house from this white family. 
And then when, when, when the moving truck pulled up and they saw some black folks, they was like, wait, 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 hold on, wait a minute. Uh, why are y'all here? They're like, oh, we just bought that house. They're like, no, no, this, this the name is, oh, that's my name. This is in the South. This is not Mississippi. This is not Montgomery, Alabama. This is right here in the suburbs of Milwaukee. The majority of the top segregated cities in the country today are all located in the Midwest and North, including right here in Milwaukee, which takes the number one spot for racial segregation. And when we mean segregation in Milwaukee, we mean suburbs versus the city. We're going to go back to Reggie's talk for the Radio Milwaukee stage, where Reggie shows evidence of the restrictive practices in place in Milwaukee suburbs. This is a sign in every Wauwatosa, city of homes, restrictive zoning. This is a sign that used to be all over Wauwatosa for years. For years, this sign told you that Wauwatosa had what they call restrictive zoning. And what restrictive zoning simply meant was that only white people could live in Wauwatosa in these communities that had restrictive covenants in place, these were legally binding documents that said only white people could occupy this particular space. And so that particular sign was a sign I went and took a picture of at the Walratosa Historical Society last year. I used that photograph in a presentation that I did uh, for the NAACP of Milwaukee. A reporter from Milwaukee Journal, Sentinel John Schmidt, was there. He came up to me and asked me about the, 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 the sign. I told him about it. He inquired about it. He did a really good article. I consulted with him on the article he wrote about kind of the history of racism and segregation in Wauwatosa. After that photojournalist from the Journal Center took a picture of that sign, the next day they took it down. They literally took it down. And that photograph, when I use it one other time, a Wauwatosa alder person, former alder person said, Reggie, you know they had one of those in City Hall too. I'm like, really? He's like, not only did they have it in City Hall, but they just took it out last year. I was like, really? And he said, that's not even the worst part. He says, the worst part, back in the 80s, somebody came along with some green duct tape, and they taped over the part that said restrictive zoning with green duct tape, as if nobody knew what was under that tape, right? I said, you guys should have left the sign up. I said, that's a teachable moment for Tosa. Don't try to hide from your history. You can't cover it up. Listen, the photograph was on the front page of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Reggie Jackson has used that photograph like a hundred times in presentations. People know. Don't hide from it. Use it as a teachable moment. And that's exactly what they're doing. I'm working with them now to kind of get the sign put back up there. So that's a good sign. But Wauwatosa certainly wasn't the only community with these restrictions in place. In fact, racial covenants like the one in Tosa took place in multiple cities surrounding Milwaukee. Bayside, Fox Point, Hales Corner, Glendale, Greenfield, Cudahy, St. Francis, Sherwood, Whitefish Bay. They all have their own types of covenants. This is an example of one from South Milwaukee. So it was written in 1937, set to expire in 2024. And let's read it together. Can we read it as a chorus? At no time shall any such lot or building thereon be purchased, owned, leased, occupied, or used by any person other than citizens of the United States of America of the white race. This provision shall not apply to domestic servants which may be employed by the owner or occupant of any such lot or building thereon. However, the government wasn't the only institution that played a role in systemic racism and housing. 
The banking sector played a devastating role in early 2000s with the subprime mortgage crisis, which led to the Great Recession. During this period, black people lost over half, half of their wealth. One bank, Wells Fargo, targeted black communities with these mortgages within the last 15 years. They were giving Latino and black borrowers completely different mortgages than whites who had the same exact credit worthiness. Wells Fargo Bank settled uh, with the federal government for $175 million in 2012. Countrywide Financial settled for $335 million, the largest lawsuit settlement ever for housing discrimination. And then Associated Bank settled for $200 million. So what is the real impact of systemic racism in housing? What does it mean? Well, basically it means that black people ended up decades, no, centuries behind white people in terms of wealth building. They didn't have access to one thing, equity. Equity builds wealth. Because you can use that equity to make repairs to your home, to send your kids to college without debt, to buy a boat to go out on a lake fishing, to buy a cabin up north, to go on vacations to Paris and France and other places. It's the, it, it leads you into the American dream. And when you deny whole segments of society the right to build that generational wealth, you have what we have today. These are the things you need to know to have productive conversations about race. I believe that the biggest challenge we have in terms of having these conversations is that we don't know enough to start the conversations the right way. Thank you all so much. Appreciate your time. So that is the problem. And that is just scratching the surface. Coming up in the second half of By Every Measure, we're talking about an organization that is tackling one facet of systemic racism in housing. Radio Milwaukee is on a mission. And if you're here to discover new perspectives on music in Milwaukee, then you're on a mission too. Join today to support the programming you love. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. We're back on episode three of By Every Measure. In the second part of every episode, we're talking to local and national experts about solutions in each of these areas. In the first half of this podcast, we learned that the government played a huge role in creating segregation across the country and right here in Milwaukee with practices like redlining. But can the government solve this problem it created? Joining me is Bill Tisdale, president and CEO of Metropolitan Milwaukee Fair Housing Council to discuss the role his nonprofit organization plays in dismantling systemic racism and housing. Government is not unaware of this. This is like, you know, what, what can we do? This is not any place high on the government's agenda. This is not any place that the government feels uh, this is a, a talking point. Basically, that's all it is, is a talking point. We have had laws on the books since 1864, back in, with Reconstruction. Uh, so it's not anything new. What we look at today is why isn't government doing anything, and then don't leave it just to government. This is citizen involvement. So our organization has actively been involved in uh, proactively investigating the housing markets and not only sales, but also rental, mortgage lending, and insurance, homeowners insurance. All of those things play key roles in getting, getting housing. And people just generally think, 
you know, well, housing discrimination happens if you can't afford to get a house. So you're doing rental and you're just going to get a rent. It happens in the sales market, as we're talking about with steering, blockbusting, uh, denial of loans. But what our organization does is investigate housing uh, discrimination through a method called testing. The Fair Housing Council actually sends people out to look for discrimination in housing through an undercover testing approach. They're able to test for bias in the real estate market, in the rental market, even home insurance. And testing is matching individuals equally on every socioeconomic characteristic except for the one you're testing for. So protected classes are race, religion, color, national origin, sex, or sexual orientation, on down the line. So if you're testing for race, we would match two individuals, one African-American, one white, send them out into the housing market, see what kind of information they get. I'm looking for a $70,000 $70, home on the inner city. I'm looking for a $190,000 home in Indrus Park uh, and send those two people out and see what kind of information they get. That information comes back to us, and all we do is look at the differences. Same, the, when I say people are matched uh, similarly on every characteristic, the same age, same income, same time on the job, same debt, same family structure. You've got two people, identical, one person black, one person's white. And that is why testing is so important because housing discrimination is hard to prove you have to go out looking for it. We can't wait for people to complain about it because it's so sophisticated in this way. You don't know you're being denied. They're, they're still taking your information. They're doing a credit check. They, they're uh, uh, doing all of the things that, uh, that they need to do and, and that what you think needs to happen for a legitimate sales transaction. You don't know if your property is being marketed the same way. You don't know if it's being listed the same way. So this is the kind of stuff that's going on today. This is an old-time information. This is information that, is, that we're dealing with on a da daily basis. And there's no way to get to that without a, a, the investigative, investigative technique of testing. Speaking of testing, do you have like any kind of numbers, results from your testing of like when those people come back? Well, yeah. You know, over the years, we've had thousands of incidences where we've conducted tests. And, and had tests come back as far as, as positive results from the standpoint of showing differences in treatment. We have had approximately uh, over 700 times that we've been in court with testing, uh, with testing evidence. We've only lost eight cases. So testing is a very viable means to do that. Most of the cases that we have, the thousands of cases that we have had, those settle out of court because when presented with the information, this happened to this person who's African-American or a woman or has a disability, those cases settle out of court generally because the evidence is right there. So uh, testing is effective. It's probably the, the best means of, of, of getting to the differences in treatment that occur in the housing market. Here's a real-life example. In the early days of uh, these testing programs, Bill went out with a white colleague of his, Fred, to follow up with a property manager. We'll let him tell this story, but pay close attention to how subtle the discrimination and racism is. Fred and I went down. There was a advertisement in uh, the newspaper it had been been run for about two weeks that there was a two bedroom unit available on the south side of Milwaukee, uh, available immediately. Uh, this was the rent. This was the availability. All of that. Fred and I drove down in Fred's car, parked around the corner, and I said I would go in first. African American went in first, and see what they tell the white person who comes afterwards. So I walk up to the door around the block. There's the penance out, the little sign that says open for inspection. Knocked on the door. The guy comes to the door. He says, yes, may I help you? I said, oh, I'm here to see the unit you have advertised. He said, unit? 
unit I he said, what, what do you, I said, you have a two-bedroom unit that's been advertised in the newspaper for the last two, month or so. Huh. I, that's still advertised? He said, well, come on, let me check this out. Let me check it out. I, he said, come on in. So he asked me in. I had a seat in his living room, and he, I could see from the kitchen, was looking through a series of uh, leases, what appeared to be leases on a clipboard, um, going through some other documents and some index cards, and came back and said, no, that unit was rented several months ago. He said, I don't know why that ad's still running. I said, well, it is still running. I said, I'm sorry. You don't have... He said, well, I said, you don't have anything? You... I said, do you have at least a one-bedroom I could take a look at? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to school. I said, I was going to use the second bedroom as a study. And I said, I can just keep my book packed up, and when, when uh, the two-bedroom becomes available, I'll be first on the list. He said, well, let me check. He said, well, we don't really have any two-bedrooms. We don't have any one-bedrooms. We don't have any units. I said, I said, well, this is really convenient to where I'm going to be working. I said, um, I'm sorry, it's still being advertised. He said, well, I said, do you have a model I can look at? He said, well, they basically look like my unit. And I said, well, can you give me a call or let me know when you'd have something? He said, well, listen, let me do this. He said, let me show you around. He, so he takes me around. He shows me that he's feeling more comfortable with me, takes me out, shows me the, the parking st- uh, parking places, asks me if I play golf. I said, yeah, he says, it's not a golf course, not far from there. The green fees are not that, that bad. We come back. He said, I'm really sorry that we don't have anything available. You seem like a nice guy, the kind of person we'd like to rent to. And I said, well, I'm sorry you didn't have anything either. I said, well, just keep in touch. He said, well, before you leave, let me give you a card. Let me give you my business card. He said, now, don't call on, that front, on, the, on the business card. I'm going to give you my home number. He writes his home number on the back of the card and says, don't call the front office. They, got, they deal with all apartments all around town. He said, you can just get a runaround going there. Call me back. As I was going through the clipboards, I saw a lease that's coming up next month. He said, that might be the perfect unit for you. I said, this is great. He said, don't forget, don't, don't use the front, call on the back, just cross out that front number. I went around the corner back down to Fred. I said, Fred, let's go. I said, this guy was great. He wanted to adopt me. I said, he was wonderful. Fred said, well, as long as we're here, let's go. I said, Fred, it is hot in this car. I said, it's 90-some degrees out. I said, people are already looking wondering, you know, what somebody parked in their neighborhood looks like. I said, I'm a black guy parked on, sitting in the driver's, in the, par- in the passenger seat of a car. I said, this guy across the street that mowed his lawn about three times going back and forth wondering what I'm doing sitting in the car. I said, why don't you just, why don't we just go? He said, no, let me check it out. Fred went up, talked to the same person. I said, where is Fred? Fred is gone. Fred is like 20 minutes. Fred comes back. I said, Fred, what were you doing? He said, I saw three vacant two-bedroom units. I said, what? I said, you talked to Mr. So-and-so? He said, yeah. I said, you saw three vacant units. You talked to the same guy I talked to. He said, yep. I said, well, you know what happened. Three people moved out between the time I came back to the car and the time you went up to see the units. This is housing discrimination. Like, I knew it existed, but I didn't know to the level to the extremes and how they use subtle ways to discriminate. You know, yeah. growing, you know, my parents growing up in time where they just said, you know, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just slam the door. So, yep. I was treated royally. Had I really been looking for a unit, I would have not reported it. People say, well, well nobody, you know, not a big number of people reporting. How would I have reported this to HUD? How would I have reported this to the Equal Rights Division? Why would I have gone to the Fair Housing Council? This guy told me. Don't call downtown, I'll get the runner, I'll call my home number back. So I'm thinking, shoot, if he didn't call me back, nothing came up, I find another place. We have replaced the slam door of discrimination, where you get closed in the face, we don't want your kind living here, with a revolving door, where you are revolved out of the system. Only through testing 
would I have found out that that man had discriminated against me and there were three units available when he told me nothing was available. That's tested. You mentioned when we were talking about uh, policies and stuff, but you said something about everyday citizens need to get involved. How should everyday citizens get involved and help change this, this issue? Citizens cannot sit back and think somebody else is doing this. No one else is doing it. And the folks who are doing it don't have your best interest in mind. And so citizens have to take action. Citizens have to become involved. If we had 200 Reggies, we would be moving. I mean, you, you're talking about somebody who has taken upon themselves to be this crusader. And I'm not saying that in a negative sense. I'm talking about we need crusaders and advocates. We need Reggies out there because you can't do this. And people say, oh, the, the government takes care of that. The government ain't on your side on all of these things. They don't have the staff and they're interested in putting funds ahead to make this. This isn't a top burner issue. So citizens have to pay attention and know that housing impacts all of us. Housing is inextricably linked to where, where you live, is inextricably linked to how, where you get job opportunities, health care service delivery, employment. All of those things are tied together. And all of us are tied together in that. It ain't no us and them when it comes to housing. And, and we have to, to undertake activities and become involved in the political process. Talk to your older people. Talk to your city council. Talk to your uh, supervisors. Talk to your representatives. Let them know this is an issue for you. And don't think that this happens accidentally. It does not. Thank you for enlightening. Thank you sure. for telling us what you do to try to change this. So that's yeah. very important in letting our community knows that there are people out there trying to make a difference. Absolutely. To recap, on this episode of By Every Measure, dealing with systemic racism in housing, some of the things that we discuss as actions include press government officials to keep fair housing top of mind, just as Bill Tisdale mentioned. Housing is not normally a top priority issue. Neither party is even championing it right now. Also, keep going out and looking for discrimination actively, bringing lawsuits against offenders, support organizations that are doing the work like the Metropolitan Milwaukee Fair Housing Council. And a solution is not necessarily that black people need to move to the suburbs, but we also need to invest in black neighborhoods, create more opportunities to buy homes, rehab existing housing stock. There are great organizations in Milwaukee doing just that, like Milwaukee's Axe Housing. We have more information about them at radiomilwaukee.org measure. We also have a great reading list if you want to learn more about systemic racism, including Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities by Andre Perry of the Brookings Institute, and The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap by Marissa Baradron. She also put together this amazing proposal idea for a solution called the 21st Century Homestead Act. The proposal would create public trust to purchase abandoned property in target cities and grant them to qualified residents by pairing this plan with a suite of programs to redevelop these cities. Really interesting read. You can find links at our website at radiomilwaukee.org slash measure. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode where we recapped a Buy Every Measure episode. Both seasons are out. Make sure to listen to them wherever you find your podcasts. And next episode, we're going to land on the present and tour the Bronzeville neighborhood and speak with Bronzeville residents. Stay tuned for an enlightening exploration of this vibrant community in our next episode.
This is your host, Salam Fathayed. Thank you to Nate Imig, our executive producer, Kiri Salinas, our audio production manager, Brett Krasgowski is our web editor. Thank you to our marketing team led by Sarah Lar. Graphics and our wonderful logo is made by Aaron Bagata. Our community engagement coordinator is Mallory Wallace, and Dan Reiner handles our social media accounts. And a big, big thank you to our city-loving members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast and tune in next week for the next episode of Uniquely Milwaukee.